Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace Podcast, where peace crosses the mind. The show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about intergroup relations and conflict, the psychological barriers that can impede peace-building efforts, and interventions that can help overcome these barriers. Our guest is Dr. Boaz Hama-Iri. He is a senior lecturer in the program in Conflict Management and Mediation at Tel Aviv University. His research examines different psychological barriers to attitude change and conflict resolution, and the development of psychological interventions to address these barriers and promote better intergroup relations and conflict resolution. He conducts his research in the lab and also on a large scale in the field. He works in various contexts and populations worldwide in collaboration with a broad community of international collaborators as well as non-governmental organizations and advertising and media experts. He received his PhD in social psychology at Tel Aviv University and was a postdoctoral fellow in the Peace and Conflict Neuroscience Lab at the University of Pennsylvania. And he was also a postdoctoral innovation lab fellow at Beyond Conflict. Okay, hello, Boaz, and thank you for joining us for the Think Peace podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to have you here. And to kick us off, I would love to hear about what sparked your interest in conflict resolution. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I guess that for that, I need to go back a while to, to my childhood. I grew up in, in Netanya, which is a medium-sized coastal city in, in Israel. And when I grew up, unfortunately, uh, when, when I was, how do you call it, like coming of age, right? The mm-hmm. years of, of coming of age, it was probably the worst years in terms of like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was just uh, uh, during the collapse of the, the Oslo Accords and the beginning of the Second Intifada. Uh, so around 95 to the year 2002, around that time. And growing up in Netanya was, was pretty rough because uh, there were quite a few pretty horrible uh, terrorist attacks that happened uh, in the city. And I, I remember these memories quite vividly, uh, you know, sitting at home, hearing these like massive explosion sounds. It affected me very deeply uh, on, on like, you know, how I, I see the world, the, uh, um, you know, what I think about the, the existence of Israelis and Palestinians in that region, in the Middle East. Um, I didn't really develop any, you know, any, any uh, specific beliefs about the situation, but it really impacted me as a human, as a human being. And then uh, when I was in the army, uh, so a few years later, I had the experience of meeting a Palestinian man, a little bit older uh, man, for the first time, I think, ever. Right, and he was actually um, incarcerated. He was in prison, in Israeli prison, for something I don't know what. And for some reason, some peculiar reason, I was asked to uh, escort him while he was taken to the hospital uh, because he I don't know he didn't feel well or something like that. And during this uh, pretty short uh, ambulance ride, well, I as a soldier 
uh, escorting this older Palestinian man to the hospital, we had a chance to, to chat a little bit. And, you know, you have this like image of this like Palestinian terrorist in mind, this like really scary person, but he wasn't that scary actually. He was like a normal human being that didn't feel well, was pretty weak. And, and we had this like, you know, informal, pretty nice chat that I got to know him a little bit uh, during this, this uh, ride. Um, so that was also interesting for me, uh, just to, to see that, you know, there's this person on the other side that is not this like monster that I was, you know, raised to believe or raised to think. So uh, during this, these years of, uh, while I was in the army, um, I uh, had a chance to go into some psychology and I decided to study psychology. I didn't have this idea of, of studying social psychology or even going to conflict resolution, but I want to study psychology. I found, found it really interesting. So I went to study psychology and, and, and quite early on, I decided that I want to study social psychology because I was really interested in like the, the why people behave the way they behave or why people think the way they think in social, in social situations. And then uh, at some point, while I was a student, I took a course that is called here uh, at Tel Aviv University, by the way, uh, a course that is called, I think, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the Arab-Israeli uh, or the Arab-Jewish conflict, something along these lines. It was basically a contact inter intervention, like a dialogue group with Jewish Israelis and Palestinians, citizens of Israel, that went into dialogue once a week for, for a semester. And during that, and I think that this was the, you know, the main thing that made me go into what, like what I, what I do now into this type of research, because it was pretty intense ex experience for me because it was the first time that I met Palestinians that look like me, you know, think like me to some extent that uh, um, have the same interests as me, but also at the same time, they have very different lives, uh, very different uh, experience that they have uh, in life, different things that they have to cope with, different narratives uh, with regard to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So it was really, it was really an educational experience for me to, to get to know these people and to hear their stories. And it was really, it was really impactful. And one more thing that I think was really impactful for me during that experience was the following year, I had a chance to, to watch this dialogue group, but from like a one-sided mirror, right? So, so I was just like watching the counters without them, you know, uh, knowing I'm, I was there to some extent. And what I found really interesting while I was sitting there is to see how each side reacts to what the other side is saying. And in particular, what I found striking is, you know, something that we can talk a little bit more later, which is competitive victimhood. So this idea that each side wants to win, uh, so to speak, this, this um, seat, if you will, of like the winner of being the victim of the conflict, right? And it's really interesting because uh, the, the, the reactions that each side has to the other side's claims of victimhood are being responded to almost instantaneously. So let's say the Palestinian group member says something about the fact that, you know, they suffered more losses during the conflict or that they have to 
uh, endure you know, checkpoints in, in the West Bank, et cetera, all of these like, you know, difficult experiences they have, almost immediately a Jewish Israeli would respond with something like, yes, but we had to you know, endure the Holocaust, so we have the right to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and, and vice versa. So that was really striking for me because people were talking at a different level, right? They, like they didn't really listen, they were reacting more than listening. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I think that these like experiences that happened to me through the years pushed me or nudged me to this direction. And eventually it made me be really interested in studying you know, conflict dynamics uh, uh, and, and in particular, uh, um, how we can understand these dynamics, these, these uh, phenomena like, like competitive victimhood and, and use this knowledge in order to promote, in order to circumvent that and, and promote conflict resolution. It's really interesting. And you, as you were talking, there were a couple areas that came to my mind when we think about peace building work. And one is when you talked about dialogue and contact. And when you mentioned, when you had the experience with the Palestinian gentleman when you were in the army and he was ill and you spoke with them and, and that created a different understanding or thought process in your mind from what you might've understood um, before of Palestinian people. And then you talk about the dialogues that you saw where there was, I'm not gonna say positive, but more engaged dialogue at the same time then you talked about also in that same dialogue, while you might have things that might bring one together, there's dialogue that might bring people apart as, as the victimhood comes in. Right. So I wanna, first of all, start, let's start with the first one and then go into the, the victimhood dynamic. The first one is what has been your, your understanding and practice or research or both in your experiences as to contact and dialogue and the creating understanding of one another, something that might bring us together how, what is that dynamic? If you, if you describe that a little bit. Well, I think, so I'm, I'm going to, to some extent, circumvent your question because... Sure, <laughs> go, go for it. You can always <laughs> circumvent and come back around. No problem. <laughs> because, because, because I think that to some extent, what at least I learned from my own experience uh, and, you know, being engaged in dialogue or, you know, watching like the dialogue interventions that are, or the... I'm not sure that, yeah, the, the work that is being done around dialogue in the like Israel-Palestinian context, it actually led me to, to try to think about ways to create change that, that is not based on dialogue, that is based on a completely different process. Because I, I, I have the feeling, and, and others share this feeling, I'm not the only one, um, that dialogue is great, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really a great tool to, to bring people together, to promote, you know, uh, 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 conflict resolution, et cetera. But it's also quite limited, specifically when we talk about contexts like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like this like prolonged, violent, you know, very hot uh, conflict. There are a few reasons for that. First, you can bring you know, so many people to, to, to dialogue group, right? So, so it's, it's limited in the sense that you can't really get the, mass, the masses to be part of it, right? You can bring a few thousand people every year, you know, something like that. So, so it's limited in, in that respect. I think that it's also limited in the sense that it's, it's more tailored to those who are more, more open to 
this type of intervention to begin with. So people like my, like me, right? I was more open to this idea to begin with. So, so when I entered this dialogue uh, group, I, I was genuinely interested in what they have to say, right? And that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And, and I saw people, I saw one person that was actually really surprising that he took part in this dialogue group that, re that wasn't really interested to hear anything that like the Palestinian side or the Palestinian members have had to say. He was there because he wanted to, you know, to, to annoy them. He wanted to, to, uh, to entice conflict rather than, than you know, uh, do anything else. So there are two things about this. First of all, it's mostly like more, let's say, dovish individuals, more that are people who are more open to this idea to begin with will take part in these, in these dialogues. And even if you do get someone who is more hawkish, let's say, who, who is willing to take part, you won't necessarily be able to change this person's views uh, because there's like a barrier, right? In some cases, not in all cases. And, and also the third thing, the, the fourth, third, fourth thing is that it's also very, logistically speaking, it's also, it's also very difficult to bring Palestinians and Israelis together in, into the same room. So you can, you can find ways to like, you know, go around this, but if you want to engage in proper di dialogue with, with groups in the same room, with, like a, with the moderator, etc., then it's very difficult to create the situation to begin with. So we have all these groups in, in, let's say, for example, in the US that bring Palestinians in Israel from Israel to the US. But here in this region, in the Middle East, to bring Palestinians and Israelis together into the same room is, is really, really difficult. Um, logistically speaking. So I think that all of these together, all of these reasons together, make this intervention somewhat more limited, especially in this type of, of context. So yeah, so that's the reason I, I, in my work, it's not that I don't do contact-related research, but I try to, to think about other ways to, to create change that are not based on, on dialogue. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, and that especially I'm picking up on what you're mentioning. If you're trying to expand one's impact, especially given how destructive conflict can be, if you're only able to do small parts, it's expanding while you're trying to basically knit up little holes in a way exactly. <laughs> while the holes yeah. are expanding. Okay, so what might that look like then? So if, you know, if one understands that a traditional Again, always feel free to correct me. So traditional dialogue, you know, with the contact has its limitations and one must also understand those limitations. What are some of the other things that you've explored for change to, I'm going to say accelerate change as much as that can happen that could be um, also more helpful? Yeah, um, so I think that what I, and, and again, others are trying to do in, in like our work is to, to first, try to understand what are the psychological barriers. Um, and this can change from context to context. I mean, there, there are certain barriers that are quite common, like competitive victimhood, as an example, or mistrust, or like, you know, uh, different, uh, very strong emotions. But there are also uh, uh, some, some barriers that are more context specific. So first of all, try to look into the context and try to understand what is the psychological barrier uh, that is, perhaps the most potent or, or 
like the, the stronger, the strongest uh, that we can at least identify, and then and then address that specifically. So I can I can give a few examples. Um, one example is from from uh, my own research, uh, from from the research I've done during my PhD. So one of the strongest psychological barriers that we um, and and when I say we, I mostly mean my former PhD advisors, uh, Danny Bartal and Eran Halperin and myself, uh, identified is that uh, attitudes and beliefs in context of prolonged and violent conflicts, such as the Israel-Palestinian conflict, attitudes and beliefs tend to freeze. Um, so people bo are born into this situation, into this intractable conflict. And from the day they are born, they are being bombarded by this uh, information about the conflict, about the enemy, about them, the, the, themselves, the being group. And this information tries to make sense of this chaotic uh, environment, uh, this chaotic um, existence in, in, in the conflict, and basically uh, leads to this, this situation where we think that we are moral, that we, we are just, that we only strive for peace, etc., etc., while the other side is not a real partner for peace, he doesn't want peace, he just tries to harm us, their claims are not legitimate, not just, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, so this is what we think. This is like the beliefs that we you know, develop, again, from, from the day we are born, through the education, uh, educational uh, uh, system, through the media, through like all the so so socialization uh, uh, channels. Uh, this, is what we, this is what we learn. So because of that, these beliefs, these attitudes are basically uh, get, get frozen, right? Um, it's really hard to change them. And, and this means that when we try to bring people to a contact intervention, to a dialogue, they don't want to take part, part in such an intervention because they don't believe the other side or they, don't, or they have very strong negative emotions towards the other side. Or if we're trying to, let's say, try to persuade them uh, that some of their beliefs or some of the attitudes are, are incorrect, then people will immediately uh, counter-argue, right? They will say, no, this is not true. What I know is this and this and this, right? So, so it's very hard to, to, to persuade people to change their views. Okay, so now once we identify this, uh, this barrier, or let's, call, let's call it uh, uh, freezing or, or uh, yeah, so freezing. So when we identify this, this barrier, the next thing we need to do is try to understand what we can do with this barrier. So if we understand that we cannot try, that using persuasion will only, need, will only bring us like some way, but in most cases, it won't be too effective, then how we can change people's minds uh, that, uh, with information that doesn't try to persuade. So it's, when you're talking about persuading, it's if we're, if someone says the sky is orange and blue, and then we're saying, no, that's wrong. It's yellow and orange. You're yeah. talking about, we're trying to counter them with persuasion by what they're saying is wrong. Yeah, exactly. So, so Directly, maybe I'll yeah. give, yeah, maybe I'll give uh, like a concrete example that, 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 that is part of like the, like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So for example, very prominent uh, perception or belief among Jewish Israelis is that the Jewish, the Israeli army is the most moral army in the world, right? That we are extremely moral in the way we treat others, 
specifically in the way we treat Palestinians. And, um, and it's a very common perception. Like you would ask almost all like Jewish Israeli and they would probably agree with that. If we try to, to persuade Jewish Israelis and tell them, you know, maybe the, the Israeli army is moral, but you know, it has done immoral things in the past, people will, will not, you know, will, will not be persuaded by that. They will say, no, if they, if, if, you know, if, if we did something that is immoral, it's only because, you know, they did something before that, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you can't really, you can't really, um, you know, uh, poke a hole in this perception, if that's the right uh, saying, because it's so ingrained within the, like, Israeli, uh, like, belief system. Okay, so that's, that's one example. So if that's the case, then what we can do in order to, you know, to, to overcome this barrier and, and actually do uh, lead to change. So what we did and what like, I did as part of my PhD is to develop an intervention that we call paradoxical thinking, uh, which is basically this idea that instead of trying to persuade others that they are wrong, you should actually agree with them, but take them to the extreme, right? So use their beliefs and attitudes, exaggerate them, amplify them until they themselves perhaps realize that what they think or, or believe is perhaps nonsensical or absurd or something like that, right? So, so use this psychological judo, if you will, or reducto ad absurdum, if you, if you go to like the, the classic uh, debating, like philosophical debating technique. So do that in order to get people to eventually perhaps change their views or, or beliefs. That's interesting because the person who does that has to be willing in a way to go with that flow Yeah. and, and move with it when the, sometimes the natural tendency is to resist, resist that narrative. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, we've done that in several ways and, and, and there are other uh, social psychologists that did similar things in similar context, in different contexts. So we've done it in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was originally done in uh, the context of uh, conservative views with regards to gender relations or gender roles uh, by, by Bill Swan and colleagues. I also have a postdoc uh, uh, in my lab called Nadine Knab, who has done similar work in the context of Germans' views with regards to uh, refugees uh, and immigrants in, in, in Germany. And what normally is being done uh, as part of this intervention is using leading questions. So people have this belief about, let's say, the fact that Palestinians wants to harm us, Jewish Israelis, right? It's again, a very common perception that many uh, Jewish Israelis share. So we can ask them a question, a leading question to agree with this this belief, but exaggerate or amplify it, such as, so like, why do you think that uh, Palestinians wants to, want to harm us in a manner that transcends their basic, their basic needs, such as being healthy or, or having food on the table, right? So we agree with them that they want to harm us, but then we take it, you know, one step further and say they want to harm us so badly that it's like the strongest need they have. They don't want anything apart from harming us. Uh, so that's one example. Uh, I can give other examples in other contexts if you want, but yeah, that's, uh, that's a general idea. You mentioned um, the research with migrants 
in yeah. Germany. And I saw with your list of publications, there's a publication pending, or perhaps it's come out by now, related to that topic. Can you give us an example in that context, especially given um, not just in Germany, but I know that's where the study was focused, but um, views um, with migrants often, oftentimes in context is, is very strongly held. And, yeah. and resistance to migrants. So I think it would be a really interesting example from, a, from that study, if you could share that. Yeah, definitely. So this study, and, and obviously I'm not as well versed in this, in this research as, as in my own, but as far as I can remember, uh, what Nadine and uh, her former PhD advisor, uh, Melanie Steffens did was to first understand what are the, like, the common, common beliefs that many Germans have with regards to the refugee crisis that happened in Europe a few years ago and, and the, like, you know, the many uh, immigrants, the many refugees that, that came into Germany in, in quite a short time. Um, and so they, they try to understand what are these beliefs. Obviously, it's different in this context than in the, let's say, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, these beliefs are widely shared, right? They're, they're like the vast majority of Jewish Israelis think that Palestinians want to harm us, etc. And in the context of uh, Germans' relations to refugees and asylum seekers, it's not as widely shared. Some people think that, not, not all. So they focused on those people, right? The, they focused on those people who do think that uh, the, the, the refugees and asylum seekers that, that, come into, uh, that came into Germany are a threat, that they, you know, they want to, uh, that they will eventually... Uh, take their jobs, uh, that they are a threat to the Christian tradition in, in Germany, etc. So all these different threats, uh, some people, again, um, uh, think or, or feel that um, the immigrants or the refugees and asylum seekers might pose. And so they, they targeted these people. And one type of, of leading question that I remember they, they used was, uh, it, it focused specifically on this on this uh, perception that immigrants, because the, the asylum seekers and refugees are Muslim, then it poses a threat to you know to Christian traditions. So they asked something like, "Why do you think that we will never ever celebrate uh, Christmas again because of the, like the you know the the refugees and asylum seekers that um, that came into Germany?" Right, so this, this again, this goes with this idea that there are threats, but again, takes it to another level by saying, yeah, this is like the end of Christmas as we know it. Yeah, so this is, I think, one example that uh, exemplifies um, this, this, type of, this type of work in that context. Yeah, so you're really looking at an opportunity or a forum for us as an individual to come to a different way of thinking ourselves. Yeah. Um, rather than trying to argue or debate somebody into that change, it's more of a, like you said, paradoxical thinking that creates the dimension in our, our thinking processes of, oh, wait, that's okay. That doesn't make sense. Exactly. And therefore I'm, I might change my way. And also what you're talking about too, which is interesting is when oftentimes when we have dialogue, people opt in, they choose to come exactly. or like you said, for certain reasons. So this is, this is able to expand the exposure and the opportunity for changing of thinking outside those more narrowly selected dialogue 
pod, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. This is something that really guides my thinking, my, my, my colleagues' thinking, which is that everything we're trying to do is always with this like idea that um, we need to create something that can be scaled up quite easily. Otherwise, I mean, it could be a very effective intervention, but it's also very limited. So yeah, so everything we're trying to think about, everything we're trying to develop is all, always with this, this idea in mind. Okay, and I know when you talk about scaling up, certainly one-on-one conversations, even if we try to scale that, can have its limitations. And I remember many years ago, speaking with Emile Bruno, who I know you worked with and who sadly um, passed, and, and a lot of his research was trying to find and answer this question is how do we expand? He didn't exactly say this, but it kind of, when, you, when I heard that, it made me think of how do we expand this and create change before we do ourselves in <laughs> on the, you know, by doing it the way we're doing it, you know, and, and harm expands or isn't, or isn't curtailed. And so are there ways that you can, that you've explored or thought of where, I mean, I know with the way of social media now, and I'm mindful being in the U.S. right now, so of course, where we sit is where our context is, and just the, the amount of social media and the division and the facts being not facts and fighting back and forth is very destructive. And, right. and I can imagine if one were to study it, there would be many different barriers, as you said. You know, we have our historical barriers, we have our current barriers, and now they're overlapping. What might be some things in modern context that you know, that you and your colleagues have been thinking about that might expand that scope to try to get a, a wider effect? Yeah, um, so, so there are a few, to make a long story short, we're mostly talking about media campaigns. That's like the main, the main you know, way that we try to, to create change in the past. In Israel, we, uh, a few years ago in 2016, we uh, translated this idea of paradoxical thinking into this like short, very, I think, nice videos that use the same underlying um, idea of paradoxical thinking. Uh, and we, we created a media campaign. We created a campaign that included online videos. So people who went online to, I don't know, uh, watch a, a YouTube video, then before they actually watch a video, they, they usually have this like ad, right? So we, we had our videos as these ads, online banners in different, you know, mainstream websites. Uh, and also we didn't stop there. We also had uh, billboard posters in, in a specific city that we targeted. And we also actually had some, some field work in which we went into the city and, and gave, you know, passes by free balloons or free t-shirts uh, with the campaign message. And, and we had that for, I think, six weeks uh, in a specific city that we targeted in, in the center of Israel. And we tested uh, this, this intervention effective, effectiveness. So this is, you know, type of the type of things that we're trying to do, be, uh, which I think um, are important because of two things. First, again, it's scalable. We think that we manage to reach pretty much the entire population of this city using this approach. Because if you were at home and you went online, 100% you saw our ads. Uh, we, we bombarded the city. And if you went uh, on the road to the city center or just, you know, drove somewhere, you 100% w- saw one of our 
posters. Um, so, so we're pretty sure, we're pretty confident that we managed to get the vast majority of, of, of city residents. So that's one thing. So it's, it's scalable. And the second thing, it's in the field, right? So it's people that, you know, living their lives, right? That we didn't ask them to watch the video or, or to be exposed to the campaign. We didn't ask them to come to, to the university, to our lab. Mm, yeah. um, so yeah. we just, you know, just they live their life. Um, and, and as part of that, they were exposed to our campaign. And so if you find that your campaign is effective in that scenario, I think that it means that you can be, you know, more sure of your uh, uh, campaign effectiveness. There are other things that go into that, by the way. Um, one thing that most interventions do when they, uh, or more most researchers do when they try to assess interventions is they give participants some reward, right? Some monetary compensation. So, you know, some money because they filled out your questionnaire or something, right? When we did what we did, participants didn't get anything for being exposed to the campaign and they didn't know that they take part in a campaign assessment. So if there is an effect, it probably means that the campaign is effective and there's probably nothing else that, you know, made people change their minds. Yeah, no, that was so interesting because I was thinking about if we're already on this kind of train track, as you mentioned, from birth and our experiences, and we already have a certain way of believing, and you're creating, in a way, another train track that they're exposed to, we're exposed to naturally, as you mentioned, in the environment, that we can then kind of hmm, compare it and hopefully get on that train track. And yeah. it's true, because a lot of studies, in a way, it's like putting the person on the train track and you already kind of know you're there. And I know when I do surveys, as best as I try to be quote neutral objective, it's still, there's like this impulse to answer a way in a way that, you, you know, that fits somehow. Exactly. And, study, and, and, yeah. and one more thing to add to that, um, you have an external, external incentive to be exposed to the campaign, right? You get money for that. Right. Right. It doesn't mean that if you were living your life, you get exposed to the same materials, you, you still want to watch it. Maybe it's not that engaging and you just watch it because you got, you got money for it, right? Um, yep. So that's, I think, really crucial. And, and, you know, most studies don't do that. Most studies, you know, right. are very explicit about the fact that they, uh, you know, that they are about intervention assessment, but it's also quite understandable because it's so difficult to conduct such studies that are like completely natural, if you will, um, that it just makes sense that um, you won't see too many studies like that. It's yeah, exactly. Difficult. Exactly. And kind of going back to that train track, if, and I think about information out in the wild, so to speak. So if we're already on that train track and have certain beliefs and there's other ways to, that keep informing that, whether it's media you know, campaigns, political or otherwise, who, are, who it's in their interest to solidify this belief on this train track, what you're doing is you're creating in the wild another alternative um, uh, alternative way for people to think, and it's in the wild too. So it's almost like a, a, a freedom of, I don't know, <laughs> of information, but not feeding it to the firming of division, but, yeah. you know, giving people that chance to think, hmm, I didn't think that there might be another way than division. Right, yeah. Another, I think, 
fascinating experiment that I was only involved in. It wasn't like you know my research. Uh, so the credit uh, needs to go to uh, Rebecca Littman, who was the person uh, in charge of that study, and she did remarkable work there. Uh, is a study that we uh, did in Nigeria, trying to promote better, more peaceful relations between Muslims and uh, Christians in a specific region in Nigeria called Kaduna, a city uh, which is in a broader region. And this study, and again, because, because uh, it's not my research that I'm, you know, I don't remember all the details, but in a nutshell, what we tried to do there is we try to incorporate a narrative of, of this basically contact between a Palestinian, a Palestinian, a Muslim and Christian women within this perhaps the most popular soap opera in Nigeria with a viewership of, of around 30 to 40 million people each week. So within this like larger show we incorporated a narrative a story about this like two young women that uh, get to to know each other under some circumstances at the beginning they don't trust each other because she's muslim and she's christian etc but then they get to know each other and they eventually become very good friends and and we so we incorporated this this narrative throughout uh, a full season so I think seven or eight episodes out of 12 episodes uh, throughout the season. And then we also assessed the, 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 the effectiveness of this intervention using, using some uh, approach. And I think that this is, again, pretty a remarkable example of how, you know, you use something that is really, really gets out to the, to the masses, really, you know, uh, gets out to so many people, but also uses these like psychological knowledge in order to develop an, an effective narrative that can actually ch make change. So I'm not sure if I was very clear about that, but I hope I, hope I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and going back to your freeze term, it mm -hmm. makes me think of what you're looking at in that, that example is a defrost or an unfreezing, a melting unfreezing. of yeah. those rigid, hard, frozen views or stories or narratives that are told around. Exactly. Something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because, because again, in that context as well, uh, uh, Christians and Muslims have very strong beliefs about the other side, mm -hmm. uh, very strong mistrust and, 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 and violent experiences that they, they you know, uh, endured through the years. But then we show them this story about how, you know, we can break these barriers, right? If you get to really know someone from the other side, and, and, and how they live and, and the fact that they're just like you, they're, they're very similar to you, then hopefully it can, you know, make you reconsider how you think about, you know, people from the other side. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, I would like to now turn to the issue of victimhood. Okay. And certainly in peace building context, that's something that for many reasons is a dynamic. And even in conflict among family or friends, we want to we want to it to be acknowledged that we were harmed, and yet sometimes we get stuck in that thing. And, and yours isn't as big as mine, or you know, or whatever, and wanting to hold on to that. Can you help us understand what that dynamic is, and then what are some of the ways to using your frozen metaphor to kind of 
let go or defrost that dynamic, that hold that we might have on, on a victimhood narrative? Yeah, so I think that when we talk about victimhood, we need to perhaps separate between two things. First, in some cases, people are actually you know, being victimized. This experience has psychological impact on, on these individuals. And, and this, this is something that we should you know, take into account. And, and in my research, I have to say that I don't really, I don't really address like people who are actually victimized because I, I don't, how should I put it? I, it's not really, I think, something that, um, how should I put it? It's not something that, that serves as a barrier to some extent uh, as, as, as much as, yeah. So, I mean, there's this type of, 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 of victimhood or, or actually victimization that uh, people um, suffer that needs to be addressed psychologically in some ways. I know that you talked to, um, I forgot his name now. What's his name? Um, what was the topic? Um, person who does research uh, uh, helping victims in uh, Syrian refugees that were victimized to cope with their trauma. I forgot his name. Anyway. You, you know, and, and, and as you say, I, I also do want to, when you were talking, it also made me think of taking care. And when we look at this victimization ongoing, it makes me think about context where sometimes in peace building or other fora, somebody might say, well, let's move on. Let's ignore that. When one, there was a harm that needs to be addressed. And in some contexts, it's an ongoing harm yeah. that hasn't stopped, whether it's an, you know, a, an oppressive, you know, an oppressive system or something that by the system itself continues to cause harm to the individual. Right. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I always want to take care that it's not this, that, that there's a lot to unpack when we talk about the term victim and, and, yeah. and what does that mean? And it's not get over it or it's not, this does not need to be addressed both from an individual healing and trauma standpoint, but also the context in which the person is sitting that could still be causing ongoing harm, which we see in marginalization, racism, you know, right. violence against um, women, it's many issues where there's ongoing harm. Right. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for mentioning this because, I mean, it's really important because in my research, I don't really uh, deal with that type of victimhood and because my research focuses more on those who just feel that they are victimized, even though objectively they are not as victimized as the other side, or they maybe feel that they are victimized, but it's more, it's more a psychological phenomenon. Um, yeah, yeah. And just into that point, Mike Nickenchuk with the Barefoot Psychology Guide of Mike Beyond Nickenchuk. Conflict, where he's yeah. working on the, the issue of healing and trauma and navigating with, um, within populations. And yeah. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Mike Nikonchuk. Yeah, I, I yeah. forgot his name. Yeah. Apologies, Mike. Um, yeah, so I don't really deal with that. I, I, I leave that to the more clinical psychologists, but I'm more interested in the, in the psychological experience of victimhood when you're not really a victim. Yeah, so, so as part of my research, for example, I did some research on this uh, victimhood trait so the extent to which people just tend to uh, feel victimized. And, and apparently it's something that has this like curve bill distribution 
normal distribution uh, in society and in the population. And so this is something that we developed a few years ago together with, with my former PG, another former PG advisor of mine, Arya Nadler, Professor Arya Nadler, and two more colleagues, uh, Rahav Gabay and Tamir Rubelifshitz. And it's something that we developed because it seems like there's some diversity in how people respond to, to adversity. So some people encounter adversity and they just move on quite easily. Other encounter adversity and they just get stuck, as, as you mentioned earlier, right? That they, they keep thinking about this, uh, about that. Uh, they, they can't really move on. And so we want to see if there's this tendency that is different for different people. We developed this idea that we tested. We thought, or we, we didn't think, we interviewed some people and, and did some uh, research and we came up with this definition of victimhood that is, it's this uh, ongoing feeling that the self is a victim, which is generalized across many relationships such that victimization becomes a central part of the individual's identity. And, and importantly, people high on victim would feel victimized more often, more intensely, and for longer durations in their interpersonal or intergroup relations. And this is comprised of four different elements that we uh, thought are really important. The first is one that you already mentioned, which is this need for recognition or acknowledgement. When I'm a victim, I want people to, you know, to say that. I want people to acknowledge it. That's the first thing. The second thing is really important and also very relevant to intergroup uh, conflict, which is this, this notion of moral, moral elitism. So when I feel that I'm a victim, I feel that I'm also better than others, that I treat others better or more morally than the way they treat me. Um, so that's the second, the second element. The third element is lack of empathy, which is, I think, you know, very reasonable. If I'm preoccupied with the way I feel and the fact that I was victimized, then I don't have the capacity to think about how others feel, show, show empathy toward, toward their, their feeling, etc. And again, this is also very relevant to the intergroup relation uh, context. And the, the last one is rumination. So I'm really preoccupied with, with how I was treated. I keep thinking about it. I keep thinking about why it happened. I keep thinking about how it affects my life, but I don't really think about how to move on or how to, to cope with it, right? How to- So the rumination to... is just the, the spinning of the yeah. same issues, okay. Yeah, exactly. This is how I you know, study victimhood. Obviously there are other researchers who study competitive victimhood and how each side in conflict you know, uh, compete for, for this victimhood state. They want to be uh, uh, acknowledged as the victim of the conflict. They want to be the sole victims. And so this gives them this, again, moral elitism, uh, this sense of, of uh, entitlement that they can do stuff, that they can you know, use violence because they're entitled to, because they you know, victimized us. It also helps garnering support from you know, third parties, right? So if I'm the victim, then others will help me and not help the other side. And it also helps us to feel good about ourselves while, you know, the other side, while thinking about the other side that he just, you know, he's, he or, or they are the, he or she or they are the per perpetrators, right? They, they are not the victims because we are the victims. So, you know, uh, so the, the, the responsibility is on them to correct the, the, the wrongs, to correct the wrongdoing. So that's another, you know, 
dynamics that, that, that happens within dialogue groups, within the broader dynamic of an intergroup uh, conflict. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and as you were speaking, and I was thinking about in different contexts in which I've worked in different countries and even in my own country, I was trying to parse through the two concepts that we talked about in the beginning and the, the more um, specific victimhood um, factors. And I'm trying to parse, there might be harm, historical or ongoing, that kind of feed into it or can get latched onto. And then the question I have is, when does that pull into the, the narrow kind of victimhood as victimhood by itself, you know, a self-fulfilling circle that, like, for example, in the United States, let me just give a concrete example. So in the United States, if we have groups who feel that because they live in certain, you know, rural areas or, or certain rights and things that they've had are shrinking and the other groups are taking over. So you have this kind of intergroup. And there's this kind of narrative of that. And I'm just, this isn't like an exact example. I'm just using it as a, as a um, hypothetical. And if there are certain truisms within that, but, but their victimhood is so much larger than that, it's taken on a life of its own so much. I'm trying to figure out how in a, how do you parse through in peace building where you're trying to pull out, or even within our, um, you know, slavery and and racism, these are these are things that have happened, and this is harm and ongoing harm. Yet some of us, even if we have actual harm, we may still be stuck in in these narrative in a certain spin that we can't even engage on the things to resolve them either individually or collectively. And I don't even know if I'm asking that right. It just it just seems very complex, where there's harm. And there's these dynamics where we could get stuck in and not let go of that, which is a barrier to us even addressing the true, true harm. I, I don't know yeah. if I'm asking that right. And I'm trying to be careful also in my language to, to honor that there, there are victims and there is harm. Yet at the same time, we can get stuck in this right. rumination and narrative of victim that is not serving moving forward. But it doesn't mean we give up that, I don't know, that right to have some harm fixed. I don't know if that's making sense. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really complicated. It's hard to address. Uh, I think that one, one thing that at least we're trying to do in our research is we're trying to address the needs of victims in a way that also does justice to the actual you know, trauma or the actual victimization that happened and, and, not, and not lead to this, like, if you will, cheap reconciliation process or cheap uh, conflict resolution process. So I guess that one example for that might be work that was being done that I, I was doing a few years ago, but others have been doing as well, such as Johanna Volhaut, uh, for example, uh, from Clark University and, and, and colleagues. So this idea of victimhood acknowledgement, right? So you, you, me you mentioned that victims have this like you know, desire for, for acknowledgement, for their, their victimhood to be acknowledged. And I think that if you do it well, in some cases it also should come with, I don't know, uh, um, some, some reparations perhaps, or, or some other, you know, meaningful action that should happen. But, but psychologically speaking, 
acknowledgement if it if it's if it's done in 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 a sensitive way and in a way that honors the the the, the trauma the victimization effect it uh, by itself can have very strong positive effect on victims in terms of their well-being and in terms of how they you know think about the the intergroup relations with with their perpetrator or with the former perpetrator so you know one one example for that is how Germany through the years acknowledged the the, the Holocaust uh, in terms of of you know monuments in terms of museums in terms of of how it was incorporated in the education system in the in the curricula etc so so I think that when this is done right and again it in some cases it has to be accompanied by reparations or or something along these lines uh, but if it's done in a way that honors the, the trauma the, the victimization then it's a very strong way or if you will intervention to to promote you know well-being um, and and better integral relations so I, I hope that this addresses your your question yeah yeah and going back to your your comment about versus kind of a cheap reconciliation or cheap short-circuiting that necessary yeah. psychological process in the idea of let's just get a peace agreement, you know, and yeah. not, and, and leapfrogging over the process of healing. Yeah, but I, exactly. I do want you all to talk a little bit about how, what you were talking about earlier with your research, the area with where you were talking about the different factors where beyond what might've happened, there is also, as I understand it, a little bit of victim narrative there's not necessarily grounded yeah. in something that would fall within the category that we were just talking about, where there was, you know, harm or perceived harm or, but it, it's kind of a life of its own. I would love for you to just touch a little bit more about how, distinguishing that aspect and how that can keep cycles and narratives in, in, in a spin cycle. Yeah. So again, we need to be, we need to be careful because it's hard to distinguish between, you know, what, yeah. what is, you know, perceived or psychological, what, what are narratives um, as opposed to, you know, what people actually experienced. But in some cases, the, the, the objective reality is that one side has more power than the other side. But still, the, the more powerful side still argues that they are the victim. And, you know, the way it's being done is by, is by using different ways to think about victimhood. So, so, for example, within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's, the objective is that Palestinians are being, more people are being killed that are Palestinians than, than, are, than are Jewish Israelis. This is like the objective reality. But at the same time, we as Jewish Israelis still claim this, this uh, victimhood state by saying, yeah, maybe this is true. But historically speaking, if you, you know, if you go outside for a minute, this like specific Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we, you know, we endured the Holocaust. So we suffered, you know, thousands of years of, of, of persecution, right? So we only have this small country that you are trying to take from us, right? So we are the real victims here, right? So, so it's, it's a matter of, of, of how you think about the situation and how you frame it, which is, which is crucial, and it doesn't have to correspond specifically to, to, the, to the objective reality, if you will. 
And, and my, in my research that I mentioned earlier about trade victimhood, for example, we just see that some people tend to do this more than others. This is not correlated or this doesn't have to be associated with actual experiences, traumati tra traumatizing or, or victimization uh, or victimizing experiences that people endured, right? This is unrelated to that, in, in, well, yeah. at least what we found in, found in our research. So, yeah. No, Super, yeah, super, super helpful. Because you're right. Because we can't. I, you know, I may perceive that there's a harm, and and it, I, I'm impacted by that. You know, so we, it's hard to parse through, like you mentioned, that there's a harm and a trauma. But how you describe is super helpful when you're looking at more of a kind of an objective set of factors, especially when you know a power group, powerful group, is claiming certain statistics or data, which just doesn't objectively exist, yet that's feeding into a victim narrative of why, you know, they are acting the way they're acting. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's super helpful to just parse through that. So thank you. Yeah, sure. And, and just um, one, one, one more thought about this. Um, in, in all cases, when there's a conflict and, and one group that, again, seems to be objectively more powerful than the other group, this more powerful group will always have some like historical trauma that they uh, go back to, to feed this uh, narrative, uh, this victim narrative. And this can go, you know, centuries back uh, sometimes to this event that happened, I don't know, in the, in the middle ages that still, you know, affects how we see ourselves in present day. And so, yeah, there's always this it's called by, by Vulcan, this chosen trauma that groups have that they fall back to. Um, and this helps them to, again, feed this narrative, this victim narrative, but also understand the, 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 the current situation, like why they do what they do, uh, you know, why certain actions are necessary, et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of um, working in Kosovo and there was, you know, many, many, you know, you know, not even in the century, centuries ago, a battle that things always went back to that had no relevance objectively to yeah. the present, yet that went back and then all that narrative historically was pulled through to make sense right. and to justify what's happening in the present, but there was no objective link that, okay, perfect, that makes total sense. So... You know, it's been wonderful, Boaz, speaking with you. And I would love, before we close, is there anything else that if you had the ability to impress upon those engaged in conflict resolution work that you would want them to know so that they could have a more impactful approach? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think something that I'm trying to do in my work um, and, and, and my colleagues as well, uh, that I think is crucial is try to collaborate more to, to narrow the gap between researchers in the academia and, and practitioners, people that are actually on the ground. We see uh, these voices of uh, people, you know, thinking that this is what we should do. We see these voices getting stronger, louder uh, in, in recent years. One, one of the you know, biggest proponents of this approach was, was Emile and Bruno that you uh, mentioned earlier. 
because there, there is a gap, right? We, uh, in the academia, we conduct research, we do it in the lab, we do it online, etc. But in many cases, it's not being tested on the ground. Uh, and in many cases, it's, it doesn't take the context as, as it should be. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't take the context as we should. It doesn't take the, the way the context affects the, the situation or affects how people behave, think, etc. Um, into account uh, as much as we should. And it doesn't take the characteristics of our, you know, intervention recipients, if you will, you know, society members, people who actually experience the conflict, people who actually suffer. Uh, it doesn't take their characteristics as well when we, when we think about intervention. And I think that collaborating more with, with people on the ground that actually know the context as much as a person can, can know a context is crucial to, to make more impactful interventions, to create better interventions, but also test them more efficiently and more um, effectively. And I think that this is something that definitely should be on people's minds when they think about this type of work. Yeah, absolutely. And coming from the peace building world, I think of how many things are done that just are kind of on autopilot or assume that this is what works or this is what you know, what we do without thinking about, like, as you mentioned, the research and how people think and yeah. um, that humans aren't all logical. And, you know, if we were, things would be very different perhaps <laughs> in, in the world, but emotions yeah. and thoughts and all of these things come into the room with us yeah. as peace builders. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah. just, just, you know, Emil used to tell this story about how he, um, he volunteered in this, uh, camp that uh, brought together Protestant and Catholic children in Northern Ireland to, you know, to engage in contact, right? And, mm -hmm. and they were there for some time, perhaps like a few weeks. And then towards the end of this camp that they, that they uh, were in, something happened that sparked like a full, uh, you know, uh, like a fight between uh, the, the kids, the Protestant on the one side, the Catholics, on the other side, and he was just stunned because, you know, this was this like peace building initiative mm -hmm. that he was just, you know, he was just, was watching, he just watched it collapse uh, in front of his face, right? Yeah. Uh, it just didn't have any effect, perhaps even backfired, who knows? Um, and this led him, led him to, you know, to go through this process of, you know, do we actually know what we're doing? Is it effective? Do people actually test or assess interventions as, as rigorously, as thoroughly as they should, et cetera? So yeah, so this is just one example, but uh, I think that by, by narrowing this gap, by, by collaborating, we can actually address these problems uh, in a much better and efficient way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I very much appreciate um, Boaz having you come on and having this conversation for the Think My Peace pleasure. podcast. Very much appreciated. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. And thank you to those who make this podcast possible, the Mary Hope Foundation and our amazing senior producer, Cam Kasser. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes and news. And remember to think peace.